Thank you, Pat, for reading God's Word for us this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you to keep your finger in that passage of Scripture because we are going to be discussing it uh, quite often. I'll be going back to that passage all throughout this message. I have told Sherry that I'm going to make a determination not to wander about today. And... Uh, uh, not because I'm trying to change my style, but simply because as I look at this passage of Scripture, this is a Scripture that should be taught, perhaps not shouted. So I'm going to try and, and put away my more uh, comfortable style, at least for me, and stay here and teach this passage. Uh, why is this an important uh, concept I think it's an important concept because all of us have developed over our lifetime an allegiance to form. Sometimes even at the sacrifice of substance. So you will see that the name of the sermon today is Changing Methods, Unchanging Message. Uh, in his book, Church Planting in the Secular West, Stefan Pass really makes it clear that we as human beings have this tendency to venerate methods. And if a method works, we sanctify the method so that it becomes a tradition. Now, now, don't get anxious. I'm not talking about the tradition of whether pastors should wear a tie or not. I'm not talking about things that don't matter, like whether you call it a bulletin or a ministry guide. I'm talking about things that have eternal consequence. We have a tendency to venerate methods, and sometimes in the middle of that, the message gets lost. So this is a photo you need to see just because. Now this is a European hedgehog, and I've already shared this uh, illustration with our elders. It comes from Stefan's past, and that is, uh, or sorry, book called uh, Church Planting in the Secular West. And, and the obvious analogy, the reason he shares this uh, illustration of the European hedgehog is because his suggestion is, just like the European hedgehog, the European church is at risk. So, so he tells this little story about the hedgehog and how over eons of life in Europe, they have discovered how to just make an impregnable defense from all enemies. Whenever a fox comes along, it just simply curls up into a little prickly ball and waits. And sooner or later, the danger gets disinterested in getting his face poked and wanders off. This is a method that has worked for generations. In fact, eons and eons of hedgehogs have been protected because of this hedgehog method. But, but then one day, a hedgehog mounts this long, smelly black tarmac and he sees this large animal coming towards him, making a great noise with bright yellow eyes. And so it knows what to do. It's mastered the method. It rolls up into a little ball, all prickly, and just waits for the danger to pass. But in the context of automobiles and highways, your best method in the past can sometimes expose you to extraordinary danger. And this is his point. Traditions that have never failed us begin to work against us when cultural conditions 
are different. This is something that has not changed in GBC for 60 years, our culture. But the world beyond our doors has been changing. And if we just stick with the methods that were at one time so successful, we might find ourselves at risk, just like the European church and just like this European hedgehog. Now, as always, whenever I preach, there's no outline in your ministry guide, in your bulletin, and that causes some of you some anxiety. So let me just, before I give you the outline, the outline's going to cause you some anxiety. Because there's seven points. Every point we're going to blaze through relatively quickly. But first, let me say three things we need to recognize. First, our evangelistic techniques, everything we know about evangelism and missions, let's just be honest, it comes from the West. The second point we should recognize is Western techniques of evangelism and missions come from the Bible. And the final thing we need to recognize is that is not always enough. There are scriptures that come from the Bible that it doesn't mean it's in the Bible, we should follow it. Judas hung himself. Don't follow that. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? You can find many methods used in Scripture that does not mean that's the method we should employ. So the message is, you know, changing methods, unchanging message. The seven points are the provocation. What provoked the gospel incident. Second, the audience. Who were the listeners? Who were hearing the gospel presentation? The trial. I'll tell you what that means when we get there. The hook. What was it that hooked the hearts, drew the attention of the listeners? And then five, the message. What was the content of the message? Six is the response. So first, the provocation. What provoked this gospel encounter? We had it read for it for us just a few moments ago. While Paul was waiting for the rest of his missionary team to join him in Athens, he just didn't sit there. He wandered about the streets of Athens. He explored the city. And Scripture says his spirit was provoked within him. Now, now that's important to understand. First of all, that word provoked means to, literally to stir up. And, and when we think of being provoked, we almost always think that's negative. So, so we read this word, Paul's spirit was provoked within him. We think, oh, that's a negative thing. Stirring up is not always negative. When you go to a big pot of soup, you don't stir it up thinking, boy, I hope I get some bad stuff in my spoon. Right? You stir it up to get good stuff. So, so what we can know about this is Paul was inside of him, stirred up. His spirit in him. And it's a passive verb, right? So it means he wasn't stirring himself up. He wasn't working himself up into a, into a foamy wrath of righteous indignation. No, God was in him, stirring him up as he walked and saw all of the idols in the streets of Athens. That is what provokes or should provoke every gospel presentation. We should not share the gospel because we feel obligated. We should not share the gospel because we're looking to put another notch in our Bible. 
and say, look, you know, how I'm helping God out. We share the gospel because in us, His Spirit stirs us up to this good thing, sharing good news. Second, I told you we're going fast. The audience. Um, I find this fascinating in verse 18. Some of the European and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does Babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. By the way, that's not really as awesome as it sounds because the Greek word divinity is actually the word for demons. He seems to be a preacher of foreign demons before you get all offended about that because that, you know, that's kind of our culture. We nurture personal offense as Christians. We get easily offended. They had no concept of demons as we do. It just meant to them, he seems to be a preacher of some spirit, some foreign deities we've never heard of. Now, now let me just help you identify some of these philosophers. Epicureanism taught that pleasure is the greatest good. And sometimes it's missold as being like, I go and get whatever I feel like I want. That's not what they say. Because Epicurus taught that the, the only way to achieve pleasure is to control your desires. It's, it's kind of a, a Buddhist, a Western Buddhism. C control your desires. Complete happiness is in the control of one's desire. In fact, they believe that it was possible to be completely immune to misfortune by simply gaining knowledge and tamping down your desires. The reason people are unhappy, they thought, too many wants, too many desires. Get rid of those desires, you'll find contentment. The, the Stoics, on the other hand, taught that happiness was found in accepting every moment just as it is. That would be a good religion for me because I'm not a planner. But Sherry needs to plan, needs to pull more out of every day. Stoics said, relax, let the day happen to you. Stop trying to seize it. Just, just let it be. And, and the fascinating thing about them was, was their address, their designation of Paul. Again, we typically want to look for offense. And the English Standard Version has translated this Greek term as babbler. The, the literal term means seed picker. Like, like, like a pigeon who's making noise and just picking around at seeds. I don't know if you notice pigeons, but at my second office, I watch them. Sometimes they're picking up bread, but half the time they're picking up little bits of stone. They're, they're, they're not that selective. They're just picking away at, you know, everything. That is the literal definition of this Greek term, is a seed picker. <laughs> but the fascinating thing is, by the time that it came to the first century, this, this term seed picker was a metaphor for a certain kind of people. A seed picker in Athens was the desperately poor who lived in the smoldering rubbish pile of Athens. They would live in that rubbish pile, separating old, torn, worn-out clothing. They would wash it, cut it, and they would patch together all these old scraps and create new clothing to sell in the marketplace. These were called seed pickers. Picking old clothing 
tearing it apart, washing it, sewing it together to make a new garment. Seed pickers. They were the original recyclers. Now, it's important to understand that when they respond by saying, hey, what, you know, what is the seed picker trying to say? He seems to be teaching some foreign demons. We need to understand as soon as he said, Jesus and resurrection of the dead, these Greek philosophers, these practitioners of Greek religion had no frame of reference for what Paul was talking about. Their gods did die. Pan died. Kronos was carved into thousands of pieces, yet somehow still existed. But their gods were all capricious. They came to humanity to do bad things to humans and to each other. They, they were horrible to live with. They had no frame of reference for a God who came down to live among men and instead of tormenting humanity, was tormented by humanity. They had no frame of reference and they certainly had no resurrection. It was beyond their imagination. And so comes the trial. Now, I'm not sure if you have given this consideration, but every time you say something, you are facing a trial of sorts. In fact, if you can take the old whiteness out of this image, you can probably find yourself right now in this image. Every time we say something, no matter what it is, we face a judge and jury. When you talk to your friends, some of your friends are deciding, do they even want to bother listening to this? Some of them are even trying to think, is, is this true or not? He's always saying stuff. It sounds like hyperbole or exaggeration. I, I'm not sure that I can actually believe that. And, and sometimes people are even thinking you said things that you're sure you didn't say. Every time we share a message, the audience is judging whether or not it is worth receiving, whether or not it's true. In fact, many of them will even interpret it just on their own. If you're out somewhere driving and you just happen to say, hey, what is that up in the road ahead? Some people in your car will say, I don't know, I can't see, I'm sitting in the back. And other people will say, what? There's a head in the road? Think about it, you'll get it if you have to explain it. So they said to Paul, come with us to the Areopagus. Areopagus means literally the rock of Ares. Ares is the god of war. The Romans called it Mars Hill. The rock of Ares was the place in Greek mythology where Ares, the god of war, was taken to be judged for the murder of the god Poseidon's son. You see, they tormented humanity and each other. And from that time on, whenever that actually happened in mythology, the Areopagus was the place where murderers were tried. But by the time Paul arrived in Athens, 
Athens was no longer the great city it once was. In fact, at this time in the first century, there was probably no more than 10,000 people in all of Athens, which means there wasn't much business at the Areopagus. Not that many people were getting murdered, and so it shifted in its purpose. And by the way, the, the tall part is, is not the Areopagus. The, the Areopagus is that rock right there. This is, this is where Paul was brought. This was the Areopagus. It was no longer the place where murderers were judged. It was the place where philosophies were judged. We can see that in these verses. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now listen to this. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. In other words, they were all seed pickers. They were not leveling a unique accusation against Paul. They were simply saying, oh, here's a a new scrap. Here's a new philosophy All of them would take old scraps of philosophical thought, sew them together, and create their new philosophy or religion. And this was just one more guy. Come to the court of philosophical ideas. Let us hear what you have to say. And here's the hook. See, we're already at point four. Those of you who have been fishing know that, that hooks can grab you. I've been hooked before, not pleasant. But in speech, the hook is the article of speech, the segment of the message that hooks the hearts of the listeners. It is the thing that piques interest, that draws attention. It exposes cultural authorities in the hearts of the listeners. So in Acts chapter 2, when Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, got stirred up in his inner spirit and preached the hook in Acts chapter 2, just like it has been for generations of Western preachers, turn in your Bibles to Joel. That's how every preacher has learned it. Because Acts 2 is the context from which we learned our evangelistic methods. Why? Because even preachers are transactional. I want to know how as quickly as possible I can get directly to 3,000 people saved in one day. And so in every seminary, I've taught at many, we teach this evangelistic message. Invite people to the Word of God. Assuming the Word of God is an authority in that crowd's heart, invite them, turn in your Bibles, to the book of Acts. But what if you're not in Jerusalem? What if you're not in Louisville, Kentucky? What if you're in Athens? Here is the hook for the Apostle Paul. Men of Athens, 
I perceive that in every way you are very religious. You are amazing seed pickers. I've never known such great seed pickers. You've got all these patches of philosophical cloth. You've sewed them together into something new and amazing. You are the most amazing religious seed pickers I've ever seen. For as I passed by, you see, he's affirming their culture. He's not being confrontational. I've seen the objects of your worship. I also found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. That's our English translation. Actually, in Greek, it's the unknowable God. The hook is getting ready to go deeper. But I'm here to introduce him to you. Suddenly, all hearts and every head is turned toward him because they knew about this altar. They, they have that one patch in their city, that, that one philosophical religious patch. They're not sure where it goes in this puzzle of religious garment they're putting together, but they know there's something beyond that mysterious God, that unknowable God. And now this foreign seed picker comes to our town and says, in the judgment seat of seed pickers, I'm going to let you know this God wants to be known. That is what hooks them. You, you see, if we're going to be effective with the gospel, we need to know the context and the culture, not just belief systems. Because even for Christians, belief systems are not as powerful as core values. Beliefs, your confession of faith is just that. It's confessional but values are exposed not by my mouth, but by my behaviors. In other words, I do believe that a healthy diet is good for me. The problem is my core value is more ghee means more ghee-licious. Prata has hooked my heart. I believe something but I don't function like my belief is a value. I know it's true, but I'm hooked into my core values. And so the Apostle Paul began with the cultural core value. He affirmed it. But in that cultural core value, he also pointed to a void. That one void, your new religious garment put together by other scraps, the one thing that is missing, and then he gets to the message. The message we can see in verses 24 and 20, or through 31, but first he says this, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by seed pickers. He is not a God that has been patched together by you. In fact, He is a God that made you and lent you breath and gave you everything in this creation. He is the one, not you. You see, it doesn't matter how you come up and craft your religious philosophy. If you make it, you are God. And that's why seed picking 
is so popular. We can pick and choose the stuff that seems most palatable to us and we can make ourselves a coat of many religious colors, something that doesn't offend us, something that doesn't drive us to our knees in repentance. But if God is God, if He made us, we are obligated to worship Him and not my own seed-picking ego. The first point of the message is God created you. He's not put together by recycled philosophical ideas. He put you together. Every bone and every breath. He made everything you know. The second point is this from Acts chapter 17 verses 26 through 27a. He, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. Why? That they might seek Him and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. What is He saying? First of all, He's saying, you're blind. That's why you make a, an altar to the unknowable God because you're spiritually blind. But even blind people can feel their way to Him. The second point is He has made you set the courses of where you live so that you will find the God who desires to be found. So that you will know the God who desires to be known. That's the second point. The third point of His message. Yet He's actually not far from you. In Him we live and move and have our being. Now that's in quotes, right? So what scripture is the Apostle Paul quoting? Well, is it from the Psalms? Is it from the prophets? The Torah? What Old Testament book is he drawing from? None. He's quoting a Stoic philosopher. And then he goes and quotes an Epicurean poet for, you know... We are indeed His offspring. In Him we live and move and have our being. We are His offspring. He is quoting cultural authorities, setting the hook deeper. See, the problem with seminaries is we only study ourselves. So we graduate. I graduated multiple times, by the way. I'm not criticizing seminaries, but I graduated multiple times from seminary. And at the end of it, I had all kinds of language that nobody else understood. I was an expert at interacting with the library. But the biggest challenge with the gospel is can we share it in a way that makes sense to ordinary people out there. The message is unchanging, but can we give ourselves liberty to quote cultural authorities that God uses to point a finger toward Him? That is the key to effective gospel proclamation. Being then, this is actually the altar call. Being then God's offspring, 
We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver, a stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of us. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands how many people? All people to repent. Because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance by raising that man from the dead. Now you're thinking, ooh, that's, I thought we were talking about good news. That's bad news. Judgment coming? Yeah, would it be bad news if your house was on fire and somebody came in, let me just call him a gospeler, and said, hey, your house is on fire, you're going to die, but the good news is here's the exit, let's go? You would think that was good news, right? Unless you just like house fires. Unless annihilation is attractive to you. Unless you put together a patchwork of old philosophies that has informed you, it burns, it's hot, but it's a dry heat, no problem. This is good news. God wants Himself to be known. He exposes Himself, allows Himself to be known. He allowed humanity to torment Him in the flesh so that we would see in and through Him is the exit route to safety. That was the altar call and here's the response. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear more from you on this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among them Dionysius, the Areopagite, and that means he was the judge of the Areopagus. My seminary professor called this Mars Hill Paul's failure. Really? The judge of the Areopagus is saved? And that's a failure? Along with a woman named Damaris and others with them. Let me just quickly do a summary of what has happened. What is important? Context. I learned the Western method of evangelism. Get straight to 3,000. Acts 2. <clears throat> The provocation, the Holy Spirit. It's the same Spirit that stirred up Peter, that also stirred up Paul. And, and what about the audience? The audience in Acts 2, this is important. The audience was God-fearers. Their hearts were well cultivated by the seed of the Gospel. But Acts 17, the audience was pagan philosophers. Their hearts were unseated soil. That's why the Apostle Paul did not begin with, hey, do you know there's an authority called the Torah? We're going to turn to it now because that would hook no pagan's heart. The hook, so, in Acts 2 was God's Word. Acts 7, the hook was cultural authorities. The message in Acts 2, the resurrected Jesus, the message in Acts 17, the resurrected Jesus, the method, I call the method in Acts 2, the evangelistic crusade. By the way, I'm going to ask you to participate in about two minutes. Don't get anxious. I'm just going to ask you two questions. And I'm going to ask you to raise your hand for one of them. The two questions will have to do with how did you first come to Christ? 
the method that has been practiced by Western evangelists and missionaries from my memory and in church history is and has been the evangelistic crusade because we are pitchmen. We're anxious to get directly to the results. What is the fastest way to 3,000 people? GBC, the fastest way to 3,000 people is talk to people who are already convinced that they should be in church. And then just offer something a little bit better than the church behind you or the church beside you. Then constantly recycle church members, pass them around to the overall Christian community. If you want to get to 3,000, that's the fastest way to do it. But if you want to reach beyond that 3,000 target market, if you want to reach into the hearts of those who know no God or who are wearing worn out scraps of religious thought, then the approach you ought to take the approach we ought to consider is the approach taken by the Apostle Paul. In the very first few verses we read, it said, he was stirred up in his inner spirit, so he went to the synagogue and the religious marketplace and earnestly spoke to those who were there. That word in Greek is diolegomai. You recognize an English word? We borrow from Greek. We get the word dialogue from that that's the first time in the New Testament that word is used in regard to missionary practice. And from that point on, Diolegami became the Apostle Paul's favorite missionary method. Why? Because in dialogue, the goal is not to sell something. The goal is to continue the conversation. And so, in this method, some mocked him. Some said, we need to talk some more. And others believed. So let, let me just, could I just take a quick poll? In terms of method, how many of you here first began to seek Jesus because you were in a big evangelistic meeting and the preacher was so powerful and dynamic and his words so piercing that you were saved at that meeting. Do not apologize for that, because I know many who were saved that way. But how many of you in this room this morning would say, yes, that's how I first began to seek Jesus, because I wandered into a big evangelistic meeting? One, two, three, four, five, six. Thank you. There, there, there's more, I bet. Is there only six of us? <clears throat> that is an amazing intervention of and by God. I had one of our youth who was saved watching an American sitcom program. God can use any method. How many of you, on the other hand, first began to seek Jesus because a friend began a conversation with you. Just raise your hand. Let me see. Okay, I can't even count. A lot of us. That tells you something about our Singapore context. 
obviously, the results will not be the same. Just as you don't harvest the same amount of crops in every field. But, knowing this, we really only have one question we ought to ask. And that is, is Singapore more like Jerusalem or Athens? Is our Singapore nation full of eager God-seekers, hearts well-cultivated and seeded with the gospel, or are we a nation of philosophical recyclers? Are we a nation that gladly takes, sometimes arbitrarily, sometimes specifically and on purpose, different pieces of philosophical thought and sews together a comfortable garment that we can live with, that makes us feel good about ourselves, is our context more Jerusalem or more Athens? I suggest to you, just because of the vote just now, we are much more Athens. My prayer for us, GBC, is that we would become known as an Areopagus. My prayer for us is that people in our neighborhood People in the nation of Singapore, when they think of GBC, they would think of Mars Hill. They would think, it's okay to go there and judge this thing. And that means some will come and they will mock. Others will come and say, hey, let's talk some more about this. And you can enter into a discipling gospel relationship with that person. But others will come and they will believe. Let us not decide. We're just going to be a safe place for the already convinced but let us be a safe place for seed pickers out in the smoldering religious rubbish heat, picking up scraps, sewing them together. Let those people be welcomed at GBC and this place become Singapore's Mars Hill. Will you bow with me for just a moment? Father God, I thank you that for each of us, you were the God who desired to be known. We're grateful that at one time you were unknowable to us. We were feeling our way blindly, but you arranged time and space, geography, even this island, so that we would seek you and feel our way to you. You are sovereign and you desire all to come to turn to you, to repent. And so, Father, in this group right now, this man knows nothing, but you know all things. You know there are those here who struggle with belief. Let them, O oh God, feel welcome to feel their way towards you. There are others who mock. Let them feel welcome. But there are others who for the first time are beginning to realize that you have drawn near. I pray that they would call upon you even now while you are near. If you're here this morning and you recognize yourself in this story, let me encourage you 
draw near with confidence. This unknowable God desires you to know Him. You're not here by accident. He has arranged the rebuilding of this place so that you could feel your way to Him. If you're a mocker, welcome. If you have doubts and questions, welcome. Judge the message. Feel your way to Him. Know Him as trustworthy. Before even we trust in Him, He is trustworthy. Father God, help us as those of us who know You, turn to You daily. Confess that we need to be less and You need to be more in us. Give us courage to explore our city. Mingle among the scrap pickers. Share boldly that You are the God who desires to be known. Do this for your namesake, we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing the song of response.